to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Do you have high estrogen levels? The term estrogen dominance gets tossed around a lot in the wellness and functional medicine worlds. It's a common blanket explanation for many common and even sometimes more serious hormone-related issues. But what you've heard about estrogen dominance may not be entirely accurate, has some dubious historical underpinnings, and often oversimplifies what's really going on. Let's unpack what's meant by estrogen dominance, what is really going on, and why it's important to identify and understand. Then we'll look at how to address estrogen-related issues to reverse common gynecologic symptoms from breast tenderness to menstrual migraines, heavy periods to hot flashes, and more, as well as protecting you against the risks of chronic estrogen exposure. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to episode 150 woo, of Natural MD Radio, High Estrogen, What It Means and What You Can Do. The queen bee hormone. Now, before you go thinking estrogen is a dangerous hormone, let me explain. Estrogen is the luscious queen bee of hormones. I know that sounds so romantic, but truly, her influence is so important and so central to our hormonal experience that I think of her as creating a lot of buzz throughout our lifetime, so I call her queen bee. She's unquestionably considered the leading lady of female hormones, which of course is a hat tip to Queen Bay. Estrogen is best known for helping shape our monthly hormonal cycles, but its role in our life doesn't end there, not even close. These are just some of estrogen's other roles in our health and well being as women. Estrogen influences the development of the female body shape and physical female characteristics, prepares the uterus for pregnancy maintains healthy blood sugar levels, stimulates cells growth, controls cholesterol levels, helps produce neurotransmitters like serotonin that keep our moods good and keep PMS at bay, assists in the production of our sleep hormone melatonin, plays a role in empathy and facial expression recognition during our menstrual cycles, helps regulate our stress response, maintains skin tone and hair health, supports vaginal and urinary tract health, supports cognitive health, memory, and executive function, supports bone growth, if I didn't say that one already, super important, supports cardiovascular health, and keeps inflammation controlled. Knowing this, it won't come as a big surprise that both estrogen levels that are too high and too low have been linked to common hormonally related symptoms and also some more serious gynecologic conditions, including uterine fibroids, endometriosis, and uterine and breast cancers. Estrogen is more complex than we might also commonly know. Estrogen is often thought of as a reproductive hormone, and while it is largely produced in the ovaries, estrogen receptors are found all over the body, in your brain, in your bones, even in your immune system. This hormone has major influences on our heart health, our metabolism, 
And as I mentioned, it even makes your face more symmetric during ovulation and more, more you more sensitive to other people's facial expressions, which enhances relationships and attractiveness, which I'm saying in air quotes, at just the right time of the month when you're ovulating to get pregnant. So many interesting and sort of tricksy evolutionary devices we have in our bodies. Estrogen's many roles also explain why women undergo such profound changes during menopause as our overall estrogen levels decline. As as that happens, all of the aspects of our health that are related to estrogen that I just shared with you can shift as well, causing us to need to get to know our bodies a whole new way, and also making it more important that we pay attention to our bones and our cardiovascular health and our cognitive health, etc., When you get to know estrogen, you understand why this powerful hormone is so much more than just a reproductive hormone. In fact, she's not just one hormone at all. She's three, estrone, estradiol, and estriol that are produced in the ovaries, fat cells, and to lesser amounts in your skin. Estrone is the weakest form of estrogen. Some of it's produced by the ovaries, but most of it's produced by the fat cells through something called peripheral conversion, meaning the estrogen production doesn't happen in a central location like the ovaries. It happens in the periphery, in your fat tissues. This type of estrogen explains why women who have more weight on their bodies tend to experience fewer symptoms during menopause because their estrogen levels stay higher a little bit longer, and why certain body compositions can similarly lead to higher levels of circulating estrogen, which we'll talk about more in just a bit. Estradiol is the most dominant and strongest form of estrogen. I like to think of her as the diva of the whole hormone health show throughout most of our maiden and mother life cycles, from the onset of our first periods called menarche, through our reproductive years, all the way to perimenopause. It's made in your ovarian follicles and drives the activity of the first half of your menstrual cycle, making another cameo appearance after ovulation. And while it's doing that, it's also having all those other functions in your body. Estriol or E3 is a is dominant through most of is not dominant through most of our lives, but when we get pregnant, E3 makes a special appearance and takes over the show. In pregnancy, estriol becomes the dominant form of estrogen, and toward the end of pregnancy, it promotes the growth of milk ducts within the breasts, enhances the effectiveness the effects of prolactin, the hormone responsible for lactation. When I was first learning these, I always remembered them this way. Estrone is when you're a crone. Estriol, think of trio, is when it's you, the baby, and the placenta. And estradiol is all the rest of the time dialing up our hormonal life cycles. Shifts in, I come up with all these weird mnemonics, you guys. You, some of them are so like R and X rated for pharmaceuticals and things I had to memorize in medical school. I'm very visual, and so I create these visual ideas that turn into these mnemonics like estriol, estrone, and estradiol. Shifts in these three types of estrogens, but especially E2, estradiol, over our life cycles determines when we enter puberty, our fertility, when and how smoothly we experience the transition to menopause. Predictable estrogen ebbs and flows are responsible for common symptoms, or morally, I prefer to call signs, that remind us we're living in a female body, like 
increased vaginal lubrication and sex drive mid-cycle, breast tenderness, mild bloating, and mood shifts premenstrually. While estrogen levels fluctuate normally throughout the menstrual cycle and throughout your lifetime, the world we live in is a setup, as you'll soon learn, for our estrogen levels to get higher than optimal. When this occurs, your healthy hormonal hum may turn into a host of annoying symptoms from mood swings, breast tenderness, and heavy periods to full-on hormone chaos and even estrogen-driven gynecologic concerns. Speaking of the world we live in, I hope you'll permit me to take a personal commercial break. Being a woman is not a diagnosis. Period problems, PMS, PCOS, endometriosis, fertility challenges, acne, IBS, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, low sex drive, anxiety, depression, and more are not just our lot in life because we have a female body. Within us is an ancient blueprint meant to orchestrate our hormones, the interconnecting pathways between our brain, ovaries, uterus, even our vag, and with our thyroid and adrenal glands, digestive detoxification and immune systems. My new book, Hormone Intelligence, which is now available for pre-order if you're listening before June 8th and on and after June 8th, available for actually getting immediately for immediate gratification, features a six-week program for realigning these pathways and personalized protocols for getting to the root causes of key hormonal and gynecologic problems while addressing symptoms. Hormone Intelligence has been called the exhale we've all been waiting for. Written by me, a woman MD and midwife, for anyone with a female body at any age and any stage, this book lets you get started on a groundbreaking action plan that has already helped thousands of women through my practice and other online programs transform their hormonal health and feel at home in their bodies again. You can get a copy anytime you like, but if you get a copy between um, now and the end of June, you will get some beautiful special bonus gifts with it. And if you're listening in real time, between now and the middle of June, you can also access a free 28-day gut reset. This is a $197 program that almost 10,000 women have gone through and the results have been phenomenal. And if you purchase the copy of my book, Hormone Intelligence, by April 23rd, you can actually, that's this Friday, you can actually join in the Gut Reset live with me, but through the middle of June or end of June, 2021, Um, You can still access the program for the cost of one book and get guided support um, with my team, and it's going to be a phenomenal experience. So to access that, you can get your book anywhere you want to and go to avivaram.com forward slash book, avivaram.com forward slash book. And if you don't know where to get a book, you can see some online places to get it. And then there's three easy steps to getting the book. Um, registered through my website, and that'll automatically enroll you in the 28-day gut reset. So thank you for allowing me a commercial break and back to our programming. Hormone levels fluctuate throughout the menstrual cycle, and mild signs of this, like tender breasts before and during your period, and changes in mood and energy levels, if they're mild, are normal. Similarly, As we enter into perimenopause, it's normal to experience changes in our menstrual cycle. We may have slightly heavier periods. We may experience some changes related to estrogen shifts. 
But if you have higher than normal levels of estrogen, these normal signs and mild symptoms can turn into something more. In fact, they can get so intense that they can interfere with your ability to function at certain times in your cycle, throughout the month, or at various points in your life cycles like perimenopause and menopause. If your estrogen levels are too high, symptoms or conditions you might experience include cyclic breast tenderness, breast cysts, and breast fullness, short menstrual cycles less than 21 days apart, heavy periods, uterine fibroids, it can be a trigger for worse endometriosis, water retention and bloating, mood swings, depression and anxiety, hormonal migraines and headaches, irregular vaginal bleeding, weight gain or weight loss resistance, and cervical dysplasia. Also, it can lead to some worsened perimenopause symptoms, so irregular cycles with much heavier bleeding, um, a new onset of migraines as high, high hormone levels plummet. These side effects of estrogen may seem puzzlingly broad and far-reaching, but as I shared earlier, estrogen receptors are located all over your body. So it makes sense that when estrogen is too high, we feel it just about everywhere. Unfortunately, if estrogen levels remain high for too long without being addressed, it can put you at risk for other long-term issues, including hypothyroidism. There's a link between estrogen and thyroid health. If your estrogen levels are too high, it leads to a decrease in the amount of thyroid hormones circulating in your body, which can give you symptoms of a slow thyroid, even if, if your thyroid is technically healthy. As I mentioned, elevated estrogens can exacerbate endometriosis, triggering the growth of endometrial-like lesions that contribute to and worsen your endo symptoms. You can experience something called endometrial hyperplasia. This is different than endometriosis, and it's very common and much more common in women um, who are on hormone therapy or who have very high estrogen, lo estrogen levels. Estrogen leads naturally to the proliferation of the uterine lining. When you have higher estrogen levels, it leads to an overgrowth of the uterine lining. That's called endometrial hyperplasia, which can lead to abnormal uterine bleeding, both during your period, but also outside your period as well. Breast, ovarian, and endometrial cancers. Years of research have shown that unhealthy changes in estrogen levels can be linked to the progression of these cancers. Heart disease, stroke, and clotting problems. Changes in estrogen levels have been linked to different forms of cardiovascular disease, which is part of why... Um, the estrogen control, uh, estrogen containing birth control pills are associated with higher rates of clotting disorders and, and clots that can be very dangerous. So as you can see, there are both immediate reasons like, hello, symptoms of estrogen that are affecting you on a regular basis and long-term reasons to get estrogen levels to a healthy place. But here's the key. Instead of just using progesterone therapy to increase progesterone, as many experts who talk about estrogen dominance suggests, the key is to reducing elevated estrogen by addressing the factors causing high estrogen in the first place. So speaking of, is estrogen dominance a real thing? As I mentioned earlier, estrogen dominance is a common term that we hear all the time in the natural medicine and alternative health world as a blanket term to describe all types of hormonal related imbalances and symptoms. But remember when I said it was of dubious origin? Originally, estrogen dominance was a theory about metabolic state, where the level of estrogen in the body outweighs the level of progesterone. 
first proposed by John R. Lee and Virginia Hopkins in their 1996 book, What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Menopause, the breakthrough book on natural progesterone, it was said to be caused by a decrease in progesterone without a subsequent decrease in estrogen. This book criticized estrogen replacement therapy and instead proposed the use of natural progesterone as a way to alleviate symptoms for, perim- for menopausal women. Unfortunately, Lee's theories have been criticized for being inadequately supported through science, being primarily based on anecdotal evidence, and having no research, to, rigorous research to support them. Furthermore, the quote-unquote natural progesterone he was recommending wasn't natural progesterone at all. It was wild yam cream, which cannot be converted to estrogen in the body. It has to be converted to uh, to progesterone in the body. It has to be converted in like a five-stage process in a laboratory. But that wild yam cream was doctored up with um, synthetic forms of progestins that were then absorbed. So you were still actually using a chemical progesterone. This is why, in my mind, estrogen dominance doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot and is really part misnomer and part marketing scheme. The reality is that there's no perfect equation for estrogen and progesterone, and estrogen dominance is therefore not really something that is measurable. Hormones are fluctuating all the time and change throughout the course of the month, but also throughout the years and decades of our lives as women. We naturally have more estrogen in the first half of our menstrual cycles than we do progesterone, but that doesn't mean we have a hormone imbalance called estrogen dominance. And we can have low progesterone because we're not ovulating and we may be functionally estrogen dominant, but that's not a condition called estrogen dominance. It's actually low progesterone. We need to bump the progesterone up. It doesn't mean estrogen is too high. Similarly, when we go through um, perimenopause and menopause, our um, progesterone levels drop more intensely than our estrogen levels. And that's not true estrogen dominance. That's a natural effect of going through the change of life at that time. That said, our modern lives do create the perfect storm for estrogen problems, particularly chronically and abnormally elevated estrogen levels. My entire book, Hormone Intelligence, is about unpacking that perfect storm that's affecting our lives so that we can have the natural blueprint of our hormones that we're meant to have, not hormones that are jacked around by all kinds of exposures and triggers that I'm going to talk about in just a minute. Through a combination of lifestyle factors and underlying conditions, estrogen levels can get too high. And if you have too much estrogen, there's a good chance you're feeling some symptoms from it. So while estrogen dominance dominance is not a term I ever use medically, nor truly a legitimate condition. It is true that estrogen-related health complications are at an all-time high, including precocious puberty in our daughters, hormone-related cancers, endometriosis, infertility, fibroids, and other conditions. So what causes high estrogen? The causes of high estrogen don't form a simple cut-and-dried list. It's not an X plus Y equals Z equation. Many of the causes of high estrogen actually overlap, and it's something that isn't typically recognized in conventional medicine. Each person has their own hormone ecosystem, the constellation of factors affecting their hormones. And it's important to look at the overall big picture instead of just zooming in on one single cause, though making sure there's no medical problem going on is, of course, essential. Here, um, I'm going to describe the most common causes of high estrogen, and it's important to understand these because they're very real, 
there, there is abundant scientific literature about them, but it's a realm, this idea of ecosystem medicine, which has university centers studying it that conventional medicine rarely recognizes or addresses. So this is why I teach this information to you so you can know the things to help your health that your physician actually hasn't learned yet and maybe will in 15 or 20 years or so. Look, when I was first studying herbal medicine in 1981, I was considered pretty freaky weird. There was there were three books on the market on herbal medicine. If I told a doctor I used herbal medicine to help people, they would literally roll their eyes and be like, how can you believe in that crap? I mean, now look, right? Like, Herbal medicines make their way into medical doctor's recommendations, nutritional supplements, changing your diet. I mean, things like fish oil are a normal part of conventional medicine. Using probiotics, normal part of conventional medicine. We treat certain infections in the hospital when we use certain antibiotics. We actually use a probiotic in the hospital to help support those patients' gut from getting certain severe complications of these either conditions, medical conditions or or, or the um, antibiotics used to treat them. So, you know, when, I'm, when I tell you things that are outside of the box now, keep in mind, I was 35 years ahead of the curve talking about probiotics and healthy eating and home birth midwifery and herbal medicine um, to what science is just, or medicine is just catching up to now. So I do believe that this will be the medicine of the future. So you're kind of getting a sneak preview on using it. And I call it the new medicine for women. And this is not stuff that's just like new agey wellness stuff. You guys, I am a geek. I mean, I read nonfiction for bedtime reading. I always have medical journal articles within hand reach. I always have one in my bag when I'm going out somewhere. Um, I'm really about making sure that Yes, if something is traditional and has been used in indigenous cultures, I don't feel like that necessarily needs hard science to back it up because we have the hard science of thousands of years of use. But when it comes to these modern concepts, um, although they do bridge with traditional indigenous knowing, like this idea that it's all connected, that our relationship to our planet does affect our health, um, really shows up through detoxification and what we eat and gut health and the microbiome, et cetera. Um, but I'm really digging into the medical literature and making sure that what I share with you is grounded and rooted in good science. So let's start with estrogen mimicking hormones in your food or environment. Probably the biggest contributing factor to high estrogen levels is exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals or EDCs. These chemicals are known for interfering with the body's hormone system because they actually mimic the hormones we naturally produce. This means they can easily get absorbed by our body to the point where they are actually sometimes found at higher concentrations in our human tissue than are our own hormones, which means they can block, overstimulate, or disrupt your body's natural hormone processes. And that's the definition of an endocrine disruptor. And that includes the way your body metabolizes and excretes hormones. There's even a group of these chemicals called xenoestrogens, xeno meaning foreign, that specifically mimic our estrogen and contribute to us having an overloaded estrogen body burden, too much estrogen that we're, we're holding on to. Another factor is slow gut elimination of estrogens or gut microbiome dysbiosis. And I talked about this recently in my podcast on the estrobilome and gut microbiome and estrogen. 
The status of our gut health, sorry, the status of our gut health influences estrogen in more ways than you might ever imagine. And one of the principal regulators of circulating estrogens is the gut microbiome. Here's how this works. Estrogen is produced in your ovaries and peripherally, and then it circulates into your bloodstream and throughout your body. After its job is done, it makes its way to your liver where it's broken down and neatly packaged by other uh, nutrients and um, plant chemicals and chemicals your body produces like N-acetylcysteine and glutathione. So it can be eliminated by the body through, you guessed it, your GI tract. When estrogen is in your GI tract, it interacts with a special subset of your microbiome called your estrobilome, which you can learn more about in my previous podcast. And that job, is, that estrobilum's job is regulating your estrogen levels for excretion and reabsorption. When your gut bacteria become imbalanced, it impairs the estrobilum and you can start to reabsorb estrogen. Unfortunately, the type of estrogen you reabsorb is also a problematic form. Some of it's meant for excretion, which means it adds a lot of stress to your body's overall estrogen load. Along with that, a low-fiber diet is a pretty significant issue for most Americans. There's a ton of debate in the health world over the importance of carbohydrates, fats, and protein, and how much of each we should be eating. There's so much heated debate, in fact, that it can sometimes forget us to cause there's another major nutrient of the utmost important to our health and our hormones, fiber. Fiber is critical for regular bowel movements, which helps remove estrogen from the body after it's been metabolized by the liver. So that estrogen, I'm sorry, that microbiome, the estrobilome is working in concert with this fiber to produce byproducts and factors that help you metabolize, break down and eliminate or reabsorb estrogen. Research has even linked a high fiber diet to a decreased risk of estrogen positive breast cancer. And in fact, vegetarians who have higher fiber diets naturally have some of the most healthy estrogen levels around. Unfortunately, most Americans are getting only about 15 grams of fiber a day when our bodies were designed to have nearly 100 a day. This can lead to constipation, which allows estrogen to recirculate and wreak havoc, along with making you feel bloated and not so great. Another factor is what I call overwhelmed or un- and undersupported hormone detoxification. I know the word detoxification can conjure images of juice fasts and coffee enemas, but that's not a really good image, is it? But <laughs> that's not the true sense of detoxification, nor is it the type of detoxification I'm ever talking about when I'm talking with you. I'm talking about metabolic detoxification, which is the process of eliminating hormones and toxins from your body. This is an inherent physiologic set of processes that work on a daily basis without our help, but can get overloaded by the many estrogen-mimicking chemicals we're facing on a daily basis. This can be compounded by genetic changes that make us slower at detoxifying estrogen, like MTHFR mutation and other SNPs, and increase our vulnerability to elevated estrogen. And a a diet low in phytochemicals and plant nutrients that help break down and eliminate estrogen are often partly doing that through supporting these liver detoxification processes. So if you're low in those, your detoxification processes may be slow. You can learn about metabolic detoxification, MTHR mutation, your estrobilum, and so much more 
by heading over to avivaram.com forward slash 150. It's the number 150 because we're in our 150th episode together of Natural MD Radio. If you go to avivaram.com forward slash 150, you'll get to the corresponding article for this podcast. And through it, that throughout that article, you will find links to all of the references, research, and the articles that I've written that I'm talking about. Okay, there's one more thing that I do want to talk about, which I'm always a little bit hesitant to bring up, but it is actually really important, and that's the relationship between weight and estrogen overload. Sadly, this is probably the only one that conventional medicine actually recognizes and in a horribly fat-shaming way. In fact, when I was in medical school, the mnemonic, not the one I made up, I would never make one up like this, but the mnemonic that we're actually taught, you can ask any doctor what the mnemonic is for gallstones. And here's what it is. Female, fat, over 40, and... and um. Yeah, female fat and over 40. And that is like puts us at risk for gallstones. That does actually have to do with something to do with estrogen. But my point in sharing that is that um, there's a lot of fat shaming that happens in medicine. So I want to, and in our culture. So I want to start by saying we need to dispel fat shaming and get to the heart of the matter. I'm thrilled to see that we're entering a new era of appreciating bodies of all shapes and sizes and breaking down stigmas that surround women and body size. I'm also glad to see that the very long-held myth for the past many decades that being fat, being thin is always healthier and that being bigger is always unhealthy is completely untrue. That said, obesity, or even carrying significantly extra weight, does increase your likelihood of producing more estrogen because we, in part, create estrogen in our adipose tissue. More adipose tissue means more estrogen production. Further, we store environmental chemicals that act as endocrine disruptors in our adipose tissue. So more adipose tissue, more storage of environmental estrogens. But instead of focusing on weight and weight loss as the solution, I mean, if that's something that your goal is, great, and I support you in that. But instead of focusing on that, we can focus in on reducing endocrine disruptor exposure, which I talk about in my article on endocrine disruptors, and of course, in my book, Hormone Intelligence, at great length, and supporting your microbiome, which can not only help with reducing your overall estrogen burden, but xenoestrogens and dysbiosis are, est- are obesogenic factors. Xenoestrogens and dysbiosis can both make us gain weight. No matter what else we're doing, you can be on the most phenomenal diet, most phenomenal exercise program, and you're doing everything. And you're like, why the heck am I not losing any weight? Well, it could be that you are storing more of these xenoestrogens or, and, or they go together. You have gut disruption because too much estrogen also disrupts the gut microbiome. And so then you end up in this vicious cycle of disrupted gut, high estrogen levels, causing more disrupted gut, causing you to have trouble losing weight, which means you're storing and making more estrogen and round and round and round you go. So wherever you enter the cycle, to try to get back to a healthy pattern for yourself, that's great. But if you're struggling to lose weight and it's something you want to do, um, know that doing these things to reduce your estrogen burden and reduce and to support your gut microbiome can really help. 
and also that if you have high estrogen levels and weight is a challenge for you, that extra weight can be producing higher levels of estrogen. Okay, last thing. If we're trying to reduce our exposure exposure to estrogen and estrogen-like chemicals, the combined birth control pill, which contains synthetic forms of estrogen and progesterone, has to be part of the conversation. The pill interferes with our body's natural hormone production and hormonal communication channels and acts as a daily dose of excess estrogen that the body has to contend with. There are also some situations where the pill is the best treatment, but for many, it's worth a second look if you have a problem with high estrogen. Similarly, hormone replacement therapy used for perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms is a common culprit in high estrogen levels. And I've prevented more than one hysterectomy in my practice in a patient who was having heavy vaginal bleeding, um, secondary to high estrogen levels from HRT prescribed to her by another well-meaning doctor in too high a dose or over too long a time. Coming off the estrogen therapy, boom, the, the endometrial hyperplasia resolved, no hysterectomy. I've also known women who have had hysterectomies because they didn't come to me and heard me talking about it and said, oh, that is exactly what happened to me. I was on hormone therapy. I never had problems with my bleeding before. All of a sudden, I started having heavy bleeding. My doctor told me I had to have my, my uterus removed because I had endometrial hyperplasia and never said a word about the hormone therapy, often that they had prescribed for the patient. The factors that I've just shared are some of the biggest factors contributing to est elevated estrogen, but they're not the only ones. Other factors like a sedentary lifestyle, underlying conditions like endometriosis or PCOS, lack of sleep, excess processed red meat consumption, stress, and deficiencies in specific nutrients can also contribute to estrogen overload and inhibit the body's ability to metabolize estrogen and excrete it efficiently. That said, all of these factors are connected and tend to overlap to cause the bigger picture of high estrogen. So if you address the factors that I just talked about, um, often that will get you on your way to rebalancing your estrogen levels. And if you need more help, that's what hormone intelligence was written for. Um, Restoring healthy estrogen levels. I'm going to give you a sneak peek, a pretty good deep sneak peek in what you can do to get started um, on your own. And these recommendations alone should be absolutely phenomenally helpful for you. And then again, if you need more, there are more resources on my website. Stay tuned for courses coming on how to support your hormones. There's my gut reset, um, which is now available, and also my book, Hormone Intelligence. So let's talk about the parts you've been waiting for, the pièce de résistance, what you can do. These important steps can help to restore healthy hormone levels and help you get out from under the environmental risk factors that we all face that are contributing to so many people having high estrogen levels. So number one, you want to reduce your xenoestrogen burden. An important first step toward improving estrogen levels is to reduce exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals in your environment called xenoestrogens. These are found in cosmetics, cleaning products, food storage containers, including your, you know, any plastic containers that you like Tupperwares, and likely the foods you're putting in your cart at the grocery store, unless they're organic, as a result of herbicide and pesticide contamination. To minimize your exposure to envi and, uh, environmental endocrine disruptors, follow these tips. Choose glass containers for heating and storing food. If you're buying something canned or in glass, make sure it is marked BPA-free. Eat organic and hormone-free foods, especially animal-based products like meat and dairy. Wash your hands well after handling paper receipts. These can be coated with BPA and or BPS. 
Check ingredients in skincare and hair care products and buy ones that are labeled paraben-free instead. Also check out my article and podcast on endocrine disruptors, which you can find over at the page I mentioned earlier. The next important step is to eat for healthy estrogen levels. Focus on a diet that is rich in fiber and plant-based nutrients, which prevent you from having elevated estrogen levels and help you to eliminate excess estrogen. So eat more of these. Leafy greens, particularly those in the brassicaceae family, which includes broccoli, cabbages, kale, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, collards, napa cabbage, and bok choy, are especially important allies for hormone health. Leafy greens are rich in something called antioxidants and phytochemicals needed for detoxification of hormones and environmental chemicals. They're what support that liver detoxification that I was talking about before. And they also contain some of the best type of fiber to feed your estrobilome to eliminate estrogen properly. Many studies have shown that a high fiber diet and a diet high in plant foods rich in leafy greens can increase estrogen excretion and decrease concentrations of bioavailable estrogen in the body. As we already know, fiber is critical for the excretion of estrogen metabolites, those breakdown products. Flax seeds are not only a great source of fiber, they're also a great source of what are called dietary lignans, which are phytochemicals, plant chemicals, that are precursors to phytoestrogens. Lignans have been shown to increase levels of something called sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG, which binds excessive uh, estrogen and makes it inactive. Experimental studies suggest that lignans may exert breast cancer preventative effects through hormonal mechanisms like blocking estrogen receptors. And one study on 48 women who consume flax seeds every day for 12 weeks noted a decline in estrone and estradiol levels. And these reductions were more pronounced in patients who were overweight or obese as described in this study. This means that flax seeds can help you improve bowel health and regularity thanks to fiber, but they also help your body eliminate harmful estrogens that you may have picked up from the environment. And you can read more about flax seeds and hormones um, on my article about those on my website. And you can also read about the value of eating more seeds and whether you have to seed cycle or listen to my podcast about that topic. All right, we talked about adding greens and fiber and flax seeds, but are there any things you want to reduce or eliminate? The answer is yes, and dairy is one of those. Now, normally, I'm not fanatical about having all my patients go dairy-free. In fact, when you look at some of the healthiest communities around the world, many of them eat some form of dairy in their daily diet. And I happen to live in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, which is just loaded with people creating organic, biodynamic, wonderful, live active culture yogurts and kefirs and all kinds of wonderful, wonderful foods. But if you're overloaded with estrogens, dairy is something to reduce or eliminate, at least for the time being. Why? Because it's one of the most significant sources of human exposure to estrogen. Unlike the pasture-fed animals of your Modern dairy cows are usually kept pregnant and lactating year-round to raise their milk yield, and they continue to lactate during the latter half of each subsequent pregnancy when the concentration of estrogens in their milk is the highest. Plus, endocrine-disrupting chemicals are also known to bioaccumulate in animal fat, making dairy products a kind of repository for hormone-disrupting toxins, which is actually true whether the animals are raised organically or grass-fed or not, because Every one of us is getting exposed to those through the air and soil and water. So 
I recommend you go dairy-free. And there are plenty of other wonderful ways to get calcium in your diet. Tahini, leafy greens, red beans, sardines, especially if they have the bones in them. Um, there's this wonderful, wonderful, chickpeas are phenomenal for um, calcium. So hummus has chickpeas and, and tahini in it. So um, you, can, you can do it and you can take, uh, if you're under 50, you can take 800 to 1,000 milligrams of calcium a day safely. If you're over 50, you can take 1,200 milligrams a day. In fact, that's what's recommended for bone health. All right, I know you might not want to hear this, but if you're trying to reduce estrogen and get your hormones back in balance, alcohol, including beer, wine, liquor, and yes, even that possibly kombucha, alcoholic kombucha or zero sugar seltzers that are alcoholic aren't doing you any favors. After drinking alcohol, your estradiol levels go up and lead to persistently high levels in the luteal phase, which can lead to uncomfortable symptoms like breast tenderness and heavy bleeding. It's a known hormone disruptor and can contribute to estrogen imbalances. It's the only air quotes food that has actually been consistently and positively proven to be associated with breast cancer. And if you are perimenopausal and menopo or menopausal and have trouble sleeping, alcohol is like public enemy number one. So Ixnay on the alcohol. What about caffeine? Well, there's no one size fits all approach to caffeine and coffee may even be really beneficial. So for example, in moderation, it can really help with cognitive function. But if you're trying to balance estrogen levels, it's something to consider hitting pause on for three to six months. I know, don't, don't cringe too hard. A study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition revealed that the caffeine from just a few cups a day can increase our risk of hormonal imbalances. Though the study was inconclusive, I will admit, and showed variations also based on ethnic background, which were kind of bizarre. If you're resistant to decreasing your caffeine consumption, at least consider switching to decaf or green tea and know that the antioxidants and phytochemicals in green tea actually support liver detoxification, which can help with your hormone health. Red meat. There is an established link between red meat consumption, elevated estrogen, red meat consumption, and breast cancer. And while estrogen levels in meat are much lower than those in contraceptive pills or other sources, it still contributes to your overall burden of estrogen, allowing it to accumulate. So lean more into fish or poultry, but especially fish, because that's really healthy for your hormones, and more plant-based in your diet. If you're going to eat red meat, keep it to no more than once a week for real. What about phytoestrogens? If you're health savvy, you may have read the words estrogen mimicking or heard me talk about, you know, somewhere or heard me talking about estrogen mimicking in this podcast and immediately wondered, well, didn't she say that some of these plant compounds act like estrogens? What about estrogen-like compounds in soy? Well, these are called phytoestrogens, and they do have a chemical structure very similar to estradiol. But here's the thing. Phytoestrogens contain a weaker form of estrogen that can bind to estrogen receptors in a good way and help them prevent them from getting overloaded with the environmental estrogens, which are much more damaging. Or, and the phytoestrogens aren't damaging. In fact, despite years of soy having a major PR crisis, the data clearly shows that moderate soy intake in women does not cause hormone health harm. Um, but to avoid excess phytoestrogen consumption, don't use soy extracts. Don't use things like concentrated soy protein. Eat um, your legumes, eat your leafy greens, keep soy consumption to twice a week, and make sure all soy products are organic because then they'll be non-GMO.
While we're talking about food, let's just talk about healthy weight and body composition. Research does suggest that if you are significantly overweight or obese, losing some weight can help reduce your estrogen levels. And considering the knowledge we have that fat cells can produce estrogen, it makes sense that reducing body fat percentage can help lower estrogen levels in the body. In one study on overweight and obese women, losing an average of 16 pounds led to a 13.4% decrease in average concentrations of free estradiol. So it can be a helpful thing to do. And of course, doing it in a really healthful way is super important. And this just, you know, I just want to share that if that is something that you want to put on your plate to consider if you fit any of the designations that might make you think it does apply to you. Supporting gut health is also really important. And, um, Supporting gut health helps support our estrobilome. It helps us to maintain a healthy weight. Healthy gut is healthier detoxification and elimination. So healthy gut is a key ingredient for healthy estrogen levels. What does it mean? It means all the things I've shared with you, eating plenty of of vegetables and greens, getting beneficial fiber, and also eating plenty of fermented foods. Fermented foods are not only tasty, they've been an integral part of just about every traditional diet around the world forever. Naturally fermented foods like coconut yogurt, sauerkraut, pickled veggies, kimchi, chickpea and rice miso are also important for healthy estrobilome and proper detoxification of estrogen and elimination of it as well. You can also supplement with a probiotic. You want to make sure you get one that contains at least 10 billion colony forming units, CFUs, of a variety of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium species to help restore the nut, the normal balance of gut flora in your, in your gut. You also want to poop regularly when you're not pooping regularly. And what is regularly? I mean, some people say every day. Um, I do think pooping every day is ideal. We tend to feel our best when we do. Um, As far as like how often you have to poop to eliminate estrogen, um, I would say you want to be pooping ideally every day, but at least every other day. Estrogen gets reabsorbed into your bloodstream and increases your circulating level. So if you're not eliminating every day, you're not also flushing out those estrogens that are sitting there in your stool. To make matters more complicated, estrogen also delays gastric emptying. So high estrogen and constipation can become a vicious cycle. So to make sure you're having regular bowel movements, increase your fiber intake, move your body every day because exercise can help get things moving. And you can use things like magnesium citrate or herbs that support elimination. As part of that, your liver is also a part of your digestive system. More than 50% of all estrogen metabolism and conjugation occurs in the liver. So it's critical to support liver detoxification pathways if you want to balance estrogen levels. The good news is that focusing on all the steps that I've shared already will help you support your liver's ability to complete metabolic detoxification quickly and efficiently without getting overloaded with endocrine disruptors or estrogen that's been reabsorbed. But to really support that metabolic detoxification, I have a whole series of podcasts that you can learn more about over at avivaram.com forward slash 150. Just jump down to the section in the article called Love Your Liver, and you'll see a link over there. You can also consider adding in estrogen-clearing herbs and nutrients, and I'm just going to name a few of them because I think that they can be helpful if you are struggling with hormonal problems already and you want to get a little bit of a jump start or like a leg up on really activating your 
your detoxification pathways. But I'm not going to go into all of what they do. You can get that information over at avivaram.com forward slash 150. But in, in, broad, in a broad picture, the biggest category are broccoli extracts. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because I've talked about leafy greens and broccoli is in that brassicaceae family. So a couple of compounds that come from broccoli extracts, DIM and indole-3-carbinol, have actually been found to help promote healthy estrogen clearance and decrease um, estrogen levels in as little as few weeks. Now, they won't be a problem if your estrogen levels are normal. They're going to help if your estrogen levels are elevated. Interestingly, St. John's wort, which we think of as for depression, may be also worth considering for overall estrogen burden. It helps increase liver detoxification of estrogen very effectively. And a typical dose is 300 milligrams of capsules three times a day, or um, about two to four milliliters of the tincture three times a day. Speaking of herbs, bitters are a group of both herbs and plants that are defined by exactly what their name implies, their bitterness. Now, the beauty of it is leafy greens like kale are actually a little bit bitter, but you can up your game a little by also adding in dandelion greaves and greens, endive, radicchio, and arugula, which are powerful digestive simulators, help with detoxification, are very rich in nutrients, and are delicious. And you can simply add those into your diet, a way to make them taste less bitter in your mouth, um, but still be effective because you have bitter receptors in your gut, which is just a really phenomenally cool thing, is to use a trick that good chefs know. I'm a good chef too. In fact, all the recipes, every single recipe except two in Hormone Intelligence are my original recipes. But the trick is to use some acid, so either citrus or vinegar, and a pinch of salt on your great bitters, and that makes them more delicious. And I also have a full article and podcast on bitters. So one question I get a lot from my patients is, should I get my hormones tested? And a lot of you guys ask me that too. When my patients ask about estrogen dominance, I'm sure that they're hoping this is the answer to all their problems. And that there's a simple test that will reveal exactly what's going on with their estrogen levels. It can be helpful to get your hormones levels tested, though it's often not necessary. And the test may not provide a conclusive link between what's going on with your hormone levels and your symptoms. They'll most likely often just indicate whether there actually is a hormone significant hormone shift going on, like you're in perimenopause, or whether there's a very significant hormone imbalance, like your estrogen levels are sort of really high, or your progesterone's really low, or something like that. The panel that I run in my practice includes estradiol, follicle-stimulating and luteinizing hormone, which are best checked in the first half of your cycle, progesterone, which is best checked in the second half of your cycle, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and prolactin. Running these tests can help identify whether you do have a specific hormone imbalance, and then your healthcare provider can help you ex understand exactly what the results mean. Unfortunately, that still doesn't tell you why your hormone levels are off. And as you now know, there are different types of estrogen that come in different forms from different sources. In addition, you may have high estrogen levels that are caused by environmental estrogen exposure, or it may be that you're just not eliminating and excreting your estrogen properly. So yes, get tested if there are significant symptoms going on. But if you're just having some run-of-the-mill, you know, monthly breast tenderness and other symptoms that fit the bill of high estrogen, you don't necessarily have to get your hormones tested. And I don't universally test them in my practice either. So lastly, how do you know if your estrogen levels have improved from doing this stuff and how long does it take? Well, you can actually start to see 
measurable blood level reductions in estrogen in just a couple of weeks when people are eating a really, especially a gut healthy diet, which is why the gut reset is so important for hormone balance and why I'm running it as a special gift with the Hormone Intelligence book until the book comes out, right? So we have a gap between now and when June 8th happens. So it's something wonderful that you can get started on. And um, then after that, it'll be available as an ongoing um, four feet course on my website because gut is just so important, which is why doing a gut reset, um, which includes dietary changes and self-care and stress reduction can make such a huge difference. But it can take three months to really notice a difference if you have pretty entrenched, you know, PMS, um, hormonal migraines, you have um, endometriosis, PCOS, etc. fibroids, those can take longer, three to six months to really see a benefit. So part of it is just thinking about this as a lifestyle that's healthful no matter what, even if you've had a hysterectomy, um, even if you are on hormone replacement therapy and or a birth control pill that has estrogen and fully intend to stay on it. These are really important things to do to keep yourself healthy for the long run. So stick with it. Stick with it regardless of what you see, but stick with it because these aren't just tips for a day. These are tips for whatever your life cycle, whatever your age, you can make such a huge difference in your immediate health and your long-term health, your bone health, your brain health, your cardiovascular health. And if you want to know more, and you wanna go deeper, you'll definitely wanna keep my latest book, Hormone Intelligence, on your nightstand or on your favorite bookshelf. I hope you found this super helpful, super interesting and informative. Like, it's all connected. How does our gut connect to our hormones? How does our gut connect to our mood and our mind? These questions are so beautiful and so elegant because finally what's happening is modern conventional wisdom is making a greater connection to what indigenous people have always known. It's all connected. I'll see you next time on Natural MD Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.